Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. We believe that through Jesus, we can freely enter into the presence of God. Let's believe that together as we stand together as you're able and sing to the one who is worthy of our worship.
Amen. All right, let's sing a thousand hallelujahs.
Jesus, this song is forever yours. A thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. You may be seated. So, arguably, the best-known Christian hymn is Amazing Grace. It's text, a poem penned in 1772 by John Newton, describes the joy and peace of a soul uplifted from despair to salvation through the gift of grace. Now, scriptures contain many stories of God's grace, and one story is that of the Apostle Paul, who suffered greatly in all the years he ministered for the Lord, yet he found joy. In 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9, Paul wrote, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. Grace was given to Paul and to John Newton and all of us as a gift of love from God, not because we did anything to earn it, but because he is a loving father. That saved a wretch like me I once was lost But now I'm found Was blind But now I see T'was great that Love 
in this amazing grace that God has given us through his son, Jesus. We're promised eternal life for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Have you imagined that day? Do you long for that day? As much as we long to experience a rest from the weariness of this life, as much as we long to be reunited with the people that we loved, and as much as we long to meet the people we have read about in the Bible or the pages of history, there is no longing like this to be reunited with, to be, I'm sorry, not reunited. I want to actually say united with the Savior. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, one will my heart feel. Will I dance for you, Jesus? 
or in awe of you be still will I stand in your presence to my knees will I fall will I sing hallelujah will I be able to speak it all I can only imagine I can only imagine I can only imagine when that day comes and I find myself standing in the sun. I can only imagine when all I would do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. Thank you for being with us this morning. If this is your first time with us, thank you for being our guest. Uh, be sure to stop and say hi to one of our greeters out in the lobby. We love when, am I in your way? I'll get out of your way. 
We love when guests become friends. It's actually about a year ago. Me and my wife walked through these doors as guests and have made friends with a lot of you, and it's been nice, so thank you. If you're watching online, I know I dropped the chat a couple minutes ago just saying hello, but thank you for being with us wherever you are this morning, wherever you're watching from. Uh, thank you for being with us and, and gathering with us this morning. A couple of quick announcements uh, for Hosanna. We'll be blessing the Warwick Community Chess with our Change for Change, which is in the back corner, right by that big picture in the corner. I found it last week. Uh, so the back right, there's a big picture there. There's a little bucket you can put in there. And that'll go to help families that are food insecure. Um, I can't share specific stories, but I know specific families who've actually utilized that when they were short on food and they were able to eat for the rest of the week uh, because they were able to go access that. So we're gathering some of our change, our loose dollars and coins that you won't even think about after you leave uh, in that bucket to help make an impact for families right here in our township. Uh, the adult class, what matters most about our faith, will not be meeting this morning uh, so folks can attend uh, Buddy Poge's memorial service, which will be right after the message this morning. And then we'll be having our family potluck right after the memorial service, uh, just over here in the fellowship wing of the building. Uh, and if you're able to afterwards to lend a hand to help us get set up for the holiday bazaar, which is already next week. Christmas is already, what? We were talking, so we have this is the first time my child's ever been to church, so if she cries, blame me, not her mom. Um, I was talking to my wife. I was like, in the same amount of time we've had a child, it'll be Christmas. Like, like it, it, it's crazy. So, Holiday Bazaar, next Saturday from 8 to 2 here on the property. So if you can hang out afterwards to help us get set up for that. And then there's no youth group today. So just make that. Yes, and we're going to take up the offering. The ushers are going to come forward. It's okay. Thank you, ushers. And thank you for all of you who faithfully give here to Hosanna to help uh, make sure the ministry and the kingdom of Christ goes forward here in Lidditz. Okay. We'll go ahead and pray for the offering. Our gracious Father, thank you for the many gifts you've given to us this week. Uh, would we be present with those gifts? Would we be mindful to give you honor, praise, and thankfulness? From the abundance that you've given us, would we, out of generous hearts, uh, give back to your ministry and to your work? Would you bless the money that comes in today? Would you further it and stretch it and grow it in ways that only you know how to do? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Caleb. That was fun. <laughs> You know, when I started here, pre getting up and preaching in front of all you was real easy. The first time they asked me to do announcements, I was scared silly. It's harder than you think. So anyway, th thanks, Papa. Uh, here with his newborn baby. That's awesome. And uh, Chris, wonderful to have your voice back on the worship team this morning. Thank you. Uh, today's movie is titled... Jane Clark, the sequel. <laughs> Most of you are on our email distribution list, so you are aware of the fact that we're taking a hiatus today from Hosanna at the movies, and it's, 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 it's for a good reason. It seems very fitting. The only reason that movies work is they connect to our stories. 
Movies are stories, and some of them are telling something that is entertaining for a while, but those aren't the ones we remember. Those aren't the ones that, that settle deep inside of us. The ones that do, the ones that resonate with what God is doing in our own lives, even if we don't acknowledge that God or know that he exists. Those are the ones that we stick with. Those are the ones we remember. A number of you were saying that about the last two movies that Joanne and I introduced to you, and um, we're glad that that is happening. That's all we get to do, just point it out. Look, look, here's something that resonates in the big stories. It seems appropriate today that we, that we go back to the big story, the story that God has been writing, and to the storyteller named Jesus, who has written the story that underlies everything else our own stories and the ones that these movies portray and everything else that we see in this world. And who better among us in this congregation to talk to us about storytelling than the one who for the past several years has been teaching so many of us how to write our stories. Jane's been doing that in these classes that she's offered now how many times? Four times or so? Yeah, and that's because she's a professional at this. She's been doing this her, her whole life and her whole career. And so we're grateful that Jane helps us understand her own stories. And she will do so again this morning. Thank you, Jane, for coming and sharing. Are we on now? Okay. Woohoo. Okay. Good morning. And yes, stories. I am thrilled to talk to you about stories because I want to know your story because everything else is just noise. The only thing I want to know is your story. So today I'm going to talk about Jesus as a story carrier. We often hear about Jesus as a storyteller, but I want to talk about Jesus as a carrier. Now, it just so happens that I have a book coming out that's got a name similar to that, but it was the book and the writing of the book and the process of engaging with God as I wrote that really motivated uh, this message this morning, which is Jesus was a story carrier. So what better time than uh, in the middle of Hosanna at the movies? Um, and what a, what a great time for us to have movies again after the writer's strike in Hollywood. What would we have done without Netflix, Prime, Amazon Prime, and reruns. I'm, I'm really tired of them. But here we are witnessing the devastation of nations in the very place where our creation story originated, the story of our faith. It's heart-wrenching, and it evokes feelings of helplessness to see this centuries-long war flare up again just on the heels of a worldwide pandemic that left us reeling. We're now watching traumas and crises that were lying dormant in the world flare up and rupture out of control. And as a species, we are in need of comfort. 
I don't know how the world gets through a time like this. But let's be honest, we're sitting at home in our warm, safe houses. And I do believe we have the obligation to witness the suffering that's taking place and honor those who are mourning. I don't know how you cope with heartbreak, but I can tell you what I do. I'm totally addicted to stories. I love stories. When the world gets to be too big, I bury myself in a good story, literally walking through the pages, well, metaphorically, maybe. And I let the enchanting tale carry me away. And it was actually the stories in the Bible that brought me back into faith after many years of being away. I could not believe the stories I was reading in the Bible. I thought, what? This is great stuff. This is better than anything I've ever heard. Maybe that's the reason I liked Tony's message so much last week about Hugo Cabret. Powerful story based on the real-life experience of an orphan, a little boy struggling to exist while caring and protecting a gift left by his father. Hugo carried his father's legacy while he was trying to evade capture by the authorities in the train station. And carrying the story became his life's mission. He personified the idea of carrying a story. And his bravery speaks to the power of the story to carry us through overwhelming times. So this week, I want to talk about Jesus. Not only because it's story time at Hosanna, but because I think we need to remember the comforting power of Jesus' story. We need hope and we need purpose again. Now, I'd like to start by telling you a little bit about <clears throat> excuse me, my own attempt to write a book about my life and how it actually led me deeper into interaction with the divine. A couple of years ago, I don't know, how many years ago, after decades of teaching literature and story writing and journalism, I sat down to write a memoir about a time in my life when my family's story was one of almost unspeakable loss. Originally, when I sat down, I thought, well, I've got this. I'm a writer. After all, I'd done graduate work in English composition with a specialty in narrative theory. But telling my family's story was so challenging and so painful that I spent days and weeks unable to find the words. And at one point, I lost my voice, my writing voice, and I couldn't work on the book. In order to begin work again, I had to surrender to a very different kind of creative process, one that I'd never tried. And that process led me into the unknown. What happened when I did was that I actually stumbled onto a mysterious story in my family 
that had been waiting to be discovered for a hundred years. It was waiting for me to humble myself and get out of the way so it could unfold. And let me tell you, it was a big story, one that had to be seen to be believed. Surrendering meant that I had to release my dependence on logic and linear thought. The same way we have to suspend disbelief long enough to experience the supernatural presence of God, another process that defies language. Author Nick Cave talks about this as a need to find a way to lean into the mystery of things, the impossibility of things, and to summon the courage it takes to not always shrink back into the known mind. What this reinforced for me is the idea that some stories do not depend on facts. Some of them bubble up in the form of, not in the form of sentences and paragraphs, but in the form of dreams or symbols and images and metaphors. And they require a different kind of telling. They demand to be carried. I could never have found this family story if I had not been willing to step away from what I thought I understood about my life and admit that I was telling a story that was determined to tell itself. I had to admit that I was not the storyteller. I was an instrument of the story, carrying a tale that insisted on revealing itself to me. So I took a step back and readjusted my expectations and decided that I would just simply act as a conduit for a story that was bigger than the one I could tell. I stopped metaphorically trying to wrestle with the story in much the same way Jacob wrestled the angel and surrendered to God. It felt very much like that. And then the story began to come to me. You might say, why would a story have so much power over anyone? How can a story be in control of us? Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who's a story collector and a Jungian analyst, says that stories are so powerful that any time a story is told, it suddenly becomes night. She's talking about fairy tales, but her point is stories have a kind of sovereignty over us a mysterious sovereignty. They have a magisterial force that strengthens us in times of turmoil. My personal belief, and this is just my opinion, is that stories are alive in us. They live in our souls, directing us through the day, every day, whether we are aware of it or not, shaping our values, our beliefs, and our dreams. 
Again, Pegola Estes. Stories set the inner life in motion. And this is very important when the inner life is frightened, wedged, or cornered. Story shows us the way out, the way down or up. And for our trouble, it cuts for us fine, wide doors in previously blank walls. Openings that lead to the dreamland, that lead to love and learning, that lead us back to our lives. So if they're so powerful, where did we get this? Where did we get the ability to see story as a portal and to use our life experience as a portal that leads to a door or at least a roadmap out of suffering? I'd like to suggest that this is one of the spiritual gifts we were given as part of the kingdom of God, the ability to carry a story. First, let me give you a little bit of English teacher talk, just a little bit of background on the history of storytelling. It's been around since human beings learned to speak and may have originated, nobody knows, somewhere between 50,000 and 2 million years ago, beginning with oral storytelling. Some think it's the distinct ability to tell stories that separates humans from other species. And the most renowned storytellers are the Aboriginal Australians. Their storytelling follows specific rules, and it's most often about something called dream time or the dreaming, the period of creation when the world took shape and life began. Then the Greeks always have to give them credit. They added structure to storytelling by including a central character, also known as the protagonist, as well as the antagonist, or the one who challenges the main character, and the chorus, or the minor characters. This scheme, this structure, is still copied today, and we see it in modern theater in Broadway, or even in reruns of Law & Order on television. When the Sumerians and Egyptians gave us the technology of writing, somewhere around 3400 BC, storytelling evolved quite a bit. Committing stories to written form gave them a sense of permanence, and we began to see stories in the form of historic accounts. So we started to log historical data, and the idea emerged that human beings could be immortalized simply by the stories that were told about them after they died. I find that really comforting, (laughs) very comforting. The printing press gave even more power to story by making it easier to disseminate them. And as literacy grew, we added more stories to what became an official canon or collection. Digital media has exploded storytelling the way they're delivered, the way they're consumed, and it's allowed many more people to engage in the creative process, very democratic process. So people who may have never tried to tell stories are now engaged in that. The only thing is now we're bombarded 
with stories. In novels, journals, news accounts, family WhatsApps, millions of emails, podcasts, live broadcasts, and YouTube videos. Stories are everywhere. Some think that our need for story is the reason that the technology has developed so quickly. And indeed, we have such a dependence on stories, especially those with high drama, that we have a political system that falls right in and gives us stories. No matter what we think, we've got to give them credit for that. As a species, and I find this really interesting, we have demonstrated an almost unquenchable need to be told and to tell stories. Lisa Crone, who's a writer, says that story, as it turns out, was crucial to our evolution, more so than opposable thumbs. Opposable thumbs let us hang on. Stories tell us what to hang on to. One field where stories have really gained importance and become uh, powerful is that of psychology, where trauma therapists are working to help people come to terms with life experiences that have been devastating or diminished their identity. Many therapists and counselors believe that finding a coherent story about what happened is the best way to come to terms with early trauma. One very interesting therapist that I've just read about, a fascinating book, uh, Dr. Galit Atlas. Her book is called Emotional Inheritance. She claims that we carry stories so deeply that we may not even be aware of their existence. In fact, she says, we carry stories that we may have never even heard. Imagine, imagine, just imagine. And I, I, for me, that's exhilarating because I think of the possibility that maybe one of my ancestors witnessed Jesus. And because that person was so overcome with joy, that feeling, that longing, that craving for union was passed to me. I believe that. I believe that so much. In Dr. Atlas's book, she writes about a traumatic event experienced by a young woman, which no one in the family remembered until it appeared generations later as symptoms in the life of her great-grandchild. The story went like this. A young man had an obsession with safety. And he came to the doctor's office saying, I don't know why, but I have to keep a packed suitcase at my front door. He had no idea what this was about. And his family didn't either. But when Dr. Atlas interviewed the family, she discovered that the great-grandmother's home had been raided in the middle of the night by the Nazis. And the family had been taken away. So those fears were passed along through the generations. Imagine this child 
inheriting and reacting to a fear that has no coherent explanation. Scientists now know that trauma is stored in the brain and it influences the expression of genes, of our genes. And that's passed down from generation to generation. So most of the time, therapists are not surprised when an old trauma expresses itself in the form of a reaction that can't be explained. The well-known trauma therapist, of course, Peter Levine, observes that when we endure something that's too painful to recall or store in our brains, it's stored in the body. And it can show up as a physical ailment, sometimes as a chronic illness, or manifest in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder. Stories carry us. Where did we get this capacity? And why do we have it? Jonathan Gottschall, the author of the book, The Storytelling Animal, says we depend on stories to survive. And he observes that our faith is proof of this. Our belief is the proof, is the proof that we need stories to keep our faith alive. Interchangeable, interchangeable. We need those stories to keep our faith alive. So it, sh- it should surprise no one that we have a Bible filled with great stories. Franciscan priest Father Richard Rohr calls the Bible one of the few subversive texts in history. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It is subversive. And some of the best stories, those we rely on to reinforce our faith, are told by Jesus. Jesus was the personification of the idea that our faith is sustained by stories because Jesus was a story carrier. And we learned it from him. When you think about it, Jesus' entire ministry was made up of stories. I'll come back to it in a couple of minutes. First, though, let's talk about that big subversive book of stories, the Bible, and its narrative structure. The entire book organized around stories about the kingdom of God as seen in the lives of some ordinary people like us. But the tales are magical, they're mysterious, and they show us how to maintain union with the divine through our lives. From the first page of the Bible, the very first line, we know we're entering an incredible story, an adventurous story, because we recognize the opening phrase. What's the first slide? In the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1. Everybody knows this. It's considered the most important opening line ever created for any story. Four simple words. Three. (laughs) I I don't speak numbers. (laughs) Um. After, after centuries, these words still have the ability to 
captivate us and bring us into a, an adventure. They're so powerful, we see them repeated in secular literature, the kind that most of us read, including movies and television. In these genres, the first line opens up just slightly differently. Yeah. Okay. Same feeling. Reaches across the page and draws you in. This line that opens the Old Testament has been borrowed by authors for centuries in various forms, used in children's fairy tales, and, and I'm sure you will remember reading it to your children. But we've seen it in various forms in stories from other kind of famous books, such as Moby Dick by Herman Melville, where the opening line is, called me Ishmael, as well as Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which opens with the line, it's a truth universally acknowledged. And in A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, which opens with the line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. These all accomplish the same thing. They draw us in. They draw us into the story. Finally, one of my favorites, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five by Jack Kerouac, where the narrator opens by saying, all of this happened more or less. <laughs> the words are different, but they still have the same literary function. And that's to draw us into a story that's extraordinary. This, by the way, is not my idea. A lot of um, um, critics, Bible critics, have written about the connection between secular and sacred literature. Maybe if the Bible had been published by a commercial company, such as Penguin House, it would be in the category of magical realism because that's a, that's a uh, genre that takes place in a familiar setting using magical elements such as miracles, characters who are often dead and some brought back to life, and a central character who's capable of performing things most people only dream about, a magician also known as Jesus. So let's take a look at the idea of carrying a story as opposed to telling one. The Hebrew phrase for carry is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, nasa. And it has many translations. Most of them, though, suggest the physical act of picking up and carrying or bearing up and bringing forth, sustaining, lifting up, or taking. And these translations reflect the culture. The Hebrews were nomadic, a walking group of people who had to carry all their possessions. Among them, the notion of carrying had both a physical and a spiritual and emotional connotation. 
So just as the ancient Hebrews carried water, food, or animals, they also carried deeply held stories. They were a group of story carriers. In the New Testament, and these are where some of my favorite stories are, we read about Jesus' three-year ministry, most of it a traveling, potable ministry, in which he carried everything, including all of his lessons. We know that he taught in stories, in parables, short stories that use... uh, that teach a spiritual lesson by using an earthly truth, making it more simple. There are a lot of ideas about why he chose to teach in parables. Some say it's because his lessons were about things we couldn't begin to understand. They were beyond our rational minds to comprehend. But he also used parables because he didn't want to provide simple answers. He wanted us to know that answers are not as important as we think. He wanted us to learn to live with the questions. He wanted us to break our dependence on logic and encourage us to enter into the mystery where the magic of his story was. The reason he did this was because he was more concerned with our hearts than he was with the knowledge we carried. The important thing is he didn't come here with an instruction manual. He didn't send us an email message telling us his stories. He came here as a human being, fully incarnated. And he physically carried and lived out God's message right before our eyes. To try to understand why he had to become a story carrier more than a teller, Let's take a look at some of the stories he taught. After his baptism, just before his ministry began, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. What did he carry with him? No food, no water, no scrolls, no extra clothing to protect him from the elements. He probably didn't even have a staff to help him walk across the rocky ground. He also didn't carry human pride, knowing it would make him vulnerable. What Jesus did carry was humility and a willingness to admit his human weaknesses and a deep trust in God to help him resist temptation. Then when he set out on his ministry, he began in Judea where he had that unforgettable meeting with the Samaritan woman. On the day of this encounter, Jesus reached the well around noontime, and he sent the others into town while he engaged the woman by asking her for a drink of water. We don't know what Jesus was carrying at the time, but we get a clue about it. Um... As he spoke with her, we get a clue from her response in chapter 4, verse 9 of John. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews 
have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, we know from her words that Jesus was not carrying a story of power. He wasn't making a demand. He wasn't carrying a story of supremacy or prejudice. Even though he knew of her past, he was not carrying any belief that the woman was unworthy or undeserving. He was carrying a message of faith. He was carrying hope that this woman would see him for who he was, the Messiah, and she would return to the village and spread the word of his arrival. Again, the story Jesus carried to Samaria that day was one of lifting up the spirit of one who was least regarded in the world to demonstrate who his people were. This story changed the woman at the well. She was seen by Jesus, and she became one of his first missionaries. So the story Jesus carried transformed the Samaritan woman into a story carrier, and she took the tale forward. And this is extremely important, I think. Because Jesus' story allowed her to drop the one she'd been carrying about shame, she was able to pick up a story of courage and grace. Yeah, the picking up and caring. Okay. In this case, we see that what Jesus carried that day was a small story of resurrection. And this is critical for a world that had a logical, power-driven definition of what Jesus' ministry would be about. It showed that his, what his definition of salvation would look like, which was very different from what the world expected, because it legitimized the people on the bottom, not the people on the top, rejected sons, barren women, sinners, lepers, or outsiders, became the ones chosen by God. The story Jesus was carrying in his ministry began to turn the world around, and soon it would be turned upside down. Next, Jesus went to Galilee, where he did a lot. He called his disciples, he performed miracles, did some healings, and he preached the Sermon on the Mount one of the most beloved stories in the scriptures. Jesus' sermon began with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted, and those who are reviled. In other words, Jesus blessed all those who carried stories of suffering, who carried stories of loss, who were unable to speak out, who carried mercy in their hearts, as well as purity, peace, and love. His message of love and joy that day conveyed a sense of confidence that these people had the fortitude to pick up and carry these qualities in spite of all the attacks they endured. 
in his sermon, Jesus carried a blessing. And this is a story we need to carry more today. Another important story carried by Jesus in his ministry was that of deep compassion. When he and the disciples left Galilee and the crowds followed him on foot, Jesus learned that there was not enough food to feed everyone. So he took the five loaves of bread and the two fish the disciples had on hand, blessed them, broke them, and gave them to the disciples and miraculously had enough to feed 5,000 people. This is one of the many places in the Bible where we see Jesus as a magician who works miracles. What was he carrying when he did this? He carried a story of compassion. He carried a shepherd's sense of protection. And he carried a nobility of spirit that says no one shall be left hungry. Finally, he carried a story of understanding that hunger manifests both physically and spiritually. And sometimes they cannot be distinguished from one another. In spite of all the miraculous things Jesus pulled off, he completely shocked the world with his last story. Everyone who followed Jesus' ministry believed he had come to conquer and defeat the enemy. But what happened was not that. Jesus was carrying a different kind of story of victory. So what happened in the final chapter of the story Jesus was carrying was his arrest, his conviction, and his sentence to death. Then he was forced to carry the cross up the skull-shaped hill to the spot in Golgotha where he was crucified. No one could have anticipated this would happen to the Son of God. No one thought this was the way the story would go. No one except Jesus. But, and this is the major plot twist in the story Jesus carried, he did the exact opposite of what we expected. As he hung on the cross, bleeding and dying, he held on to the story that he came to tell. He carried a story of compassion for the thief who was crucified with him, a story of forgiveness for those who were responsible for his death. And he carried a story of deep agony for himself and prayed for relief. But he also carried the story of a deep secret that no one could have known. And he died carrying the knowledge that he was going to be resurrected. That was a story no one could anticipate and hardly anyone could believe when it happened. We've never had the language to contain this story. It defies. It's unspeakable. Remember Mary's disbelief when she saw Jesus in the garden days after the crucifixion? 
She was speechless. Then when Jesus told her who he was and sent her to tell the disciples, they didn't believe the story either. It was a story that defied telling. It was incredible, and it still challenges us today. And that's because telling the story does not do it justice. It's impossible to tell, or as theologians say, it's ineffable. It is a story that must be carried, not told. It has to be carried. Jesus could not have come here as a storyteller. He could not simply tell us about the kingdom of God. It was dangerous. It was revolutionary. And it turned the world upside down. He had to show us what that looked like. And we had to stand aside and watch the story unfold. So my question for you is, how can you live out this story? This is God's expectation, you know, of all of us, to live a resurrected life, especially in the conditions our world is in now. So what does this look like? How do we carry a story of resurrection in a world that demands production and achievement and busyness? How do we summon up the strength to become the conduit for this divine story? Maybe this will help. I'd like to share an an example of a story of Jesus as a story carrier in a piece of children's literature a book written by minister and author Brian McLaren and writer and peace activist Gareth Higgins. Cute little book. Adorable. McLaren and Higgins have produced a new podcast series called The Seven Stories, based on their book, Corey and the Seventh Story. In the introduction, they describe that their goal is to help us become conscious of the stories we're telling ourselves, both individually and as a community. Because our stories can either be devastating or they can be life-saving, both to us as individuals and to the entire world. The opening podcast lists seven stories that were predominantly told during the time of Jesus' ministry. I'd like to show these to you here, and I'd like to ask you to reflect on how closely they parallel the cultural narratives we're telling today. Story of the power to dominate. This was the story carried by the Roman Empire. It happens today. The story of striking back called the revolution story, told by those who wanted to turn the empire upside down, but they had nothing to offer as a substitute. The purification story, or the story of running to find a safe place. The story of pointing at others in shame and disgrace. 
the story of me having more shiny objects than you. And the story of being stuck in self-pity for the pain we've been through. Now, that last one is a victimization story, but the writers emphasize that it is told by those whose identity was comprised of being victimized, not to diminish those who are victimized, because it happens, but the story told by those who want to use it to harm others. The last story, which they haven't finished yet, is Jesus' story. McLaren and Higgins haven't told that one yet, except to say that it was one of love. Jesus came to carry the story of peace and love. So I'm going to stick my own interpretation in here. I believe that when Jesus carried the story of love, he interrupted the existing narrative and broke through the futility of all the other stories. Hallelujah. Could we do that today? Could we just stop and say, love and peace? Lord, could we do that? Imagine, just imagine. The thing is, Jesus broke all the rules of storytelling by coming as a story carrier. It cost him his life. But the important thing is, by carrying the story of love, he took the story beyond the predictable end. He came back. Because love calls forth life from death. Love calls forth life from death. Had he been unwilling to carry God's story of love, it might have ended with the crucifixion. Instead, his death was the foreshadowing of the most beautiful story the world has ever seen, the story of resurrection. So, again, I want to ask you what story you're carrying. Which story are you listening to? And can you hear the lines of Jesus' story through all the noise created by the other tales? If so, you are a story carrier. You're carrying a blessing for yourself and for our world. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do spiritual bypassing or live in denial. The world is falling apart right now. A lot of devastation and destruction. But I'd like to ask you to consider the words of the on-being radio show uh, host and podcast show, Krista Tippett. She speaks of a new story we can carry together the generative story of our time, the story we tell which is not of the upheaval, the breakdown, the chaos, the rupture we are living through, but rather the way in which our shared experience is drawing us together as a community, as a sphere of faithful, the story about the way we are edifying one another, caring for one another, 
and recognizing the dignity and humanity in one another. That is a story we can pick up and carry. Let's pray. God, we love the story Jesus came to carry. He was magical. And he has called on us to follow his work by carrying our own stories that reveal the presence of God in our lives. So give us the strength to pick up and carry stories of resurrection in any small way we can. Teach us to lean into the mystery, to embody and live out our stories, and to carry them in the way Jesus did, magically, enchantingly.